Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist. I'm Michelle Fulner, and this is the second part of my talk with Jason Ferreira on salmon. In the last episode, you heard Jason and I on our walk beside the American River. We saw a couple of late season Chinook salmon, looked for reds, spotted birds, and talked about what makes salmon a keystone species. I find that episode to be very sort of zen and soothing. So if you haven't heard it yet, pause this one, go back and give that one a listen. This one will wait for you. And when you're back, you're probably wondering, well, if we did that part already, what's this episode about? Well, this one is the full sit down interview with Jason. I love this episode so much. I don't wanna play favorites. I'm not gonna play favorites. I love them in different ways. In this one, we get into the full life cycle of salmon, including what they're up to when they're in the ocean, what hatcheries do and why they're so controversial, river restoration projects, how high salmon can jump, a little bit about salmon outside of the state of California, and even a little bit about mercury madness in the Old West. I think you're gonna love this one. But before we get to the episode, I wanted to take a second and say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the show. Those make such a big difference in keeping Golden State Naturalist up in the charts, which helps other people find it, which helps me a ton as an independent podcaster with zero marketing budget. Your reviews also just make me feel incredibly warm and fuzzy inside. Uh, Like this one from Alan M444, who said, cannot wait for more. Such a fun way to learn about the world around us in this beautiful state. This podcast is easy to listen to, captivating, and so informational. So thank you so much. That made my whole day when I read that one. And also true about all of the other ones that are on there. I just picked that one. So if you haven't had a chance yet to leave a review, it's super easy to do and it helps so much and it makes my whole day. Another way you can help the show is by sharing it with your nature loving friends, family members, coworkers, acquaintances, and strangers at REI. Personally, I find that I'm pretty likely to pursue something that's sent to me in a personal text from somebody I know. So I have a special challenge for you this episode. Think of two people you know who love nature, the outdoors, hiking, backpacking, walking, maybe the last person you saw staring longingly out the window in your last meeting, and send them a link to my brand new, very excited about that, website, which is really easy to remember. It's just goldenstatenaturalist.com. That will give them links to every possible way, pretty much, that they can listen to the podcast. So if they use an iPhone, they can go to Apple Podcasts, and there's also Stitcher and all kinds of other um, listening services on there. So that's a one-stop shop for everything. So if you would share it with two people via text message, I would appreciate that so much. Again, that's goldenstatenaturalist.com and I would just be thankful forever. Okay, and one final thing before you get to hear the interview, and that is that you can gain access to all kinds of extras and behind the scenes updates on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. That money goes directly toward helping this show get made by paying for things like recording equipment, gas money to get me to and from interviews, and some listeners have even expressed interest in merch, so the Patreon support would allow me to get started on that too. Some things you can currently see on Patreon are audio extras from the geology episode with Nate Manley and a video of Jason with the salmon skeleton from the last episode. And I love that video because you actually get to see his whole thinking process. It's super cool. There will be so much more going up soon on Patreon, including my first AMA, Ask Me Anything. That's going to happen in April. And the Oak level patrons, that's the highest level patrons, who sign up before the end of April will be getting 
a little teeny tiny special thank you gift in May. So that's patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. Michelle with two L's. Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Okay, that was a lot. Thanks for hanging in there. Without further ado, let's get to part two of Salmon with Jason Ferreira on Golden State Naturalist. You know, it's funny, I got interested in salmon because I had an interesting bear. In case you don't remember from last time, Jason has worked at Fish and Wildlife for the last 10 years, and he's also an elementary school teacher. We met up for this interview on New Year's Day at the American River, right close to Nimbus Hatchery. So early in my career, I started studying bears and their habitat and the issues surrounding bear survival and bear reintroduction into new places. And that led me to the rivers and what they were eating. So I slowly started realizing, okay, so for the bears, we need to fish. You know, what fish kind of fish are these? Oh, these are salmon. And what impacts are the salmon returns having on the bears? So I stopped looking at the bears and started looking more and more at the salmon and the other uh, environmental factors around them. And I just got really intrigued of how much of nature is dependent Mm. on the salmon, Mm -hmm. on that annual migration, and how we as humans have altered it, and how we try to mitigate our our impact on the wildlife. So it just really became fascinating, and it was a great way to introduce people to the wild, because it's something they can see, Mm -hmm. it's something they can get close to. You know, to find a bear, well, you know, you have to wander around quite a bit. There's not a whole lot of bears this close to town. No, and I think I like it that way, but... uh, Probably for the best. (laughs) Probably for the best. Okay, so Jason and I laugh about this, and that's because bears really can be dangerous, especially under the wrong circumstances. They do attack people on occasion, and there are between two and five fatalities related to bears in North America every year. But to put that into perspective, about 24 people per year, and this is worldwide, are killed by champagne corks. So bears really do get the worst end of this. In contrast to that two to five human fatalities, 50,000 bears are legally hunted in North America each year. And an unknown quantity is poached in addition to that. So a lot of people probably kill bears without the proper licensing. In 2020, in Yosemite National Park alone, 14 bears were hit by cars. I don't know how many of them survived, but a number of bears are hit every year by cars in Yosemite. There's also some amount of bears that are killed each year because they're too habituated to humans, usually because people have fed them or left food out that bears can get to, and then they get really used to being around people, which creates an unsafe situation for people. So it probably is for the best that bears are not close to our cities, but maybe that's for the best for the bears as much as it is for our safety. And what about bears outside of cities? What about grizzly bears? I went down a rabbit hole, you guys. Let's talk about bear reintroduction. You might have caught that Jason mentioned that a minute ago. There is a conversation right now in California about reintroducing grizzly bears, which there were about 10,000 of in the state before the gold rush. These bears are now famously absent, despite appearing on our state flag and the art for my podcast. 
They were last spotted in California in 1924 in the wild. And from what I can tell, this is currently just in the research phase, but other apex predators have been successfully reintroduced already in other places. The most famous example of this is the Yellowstone wolves. So in 1995, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park, and it caused this trophic cascade. So that means that restoring the top predator causes changes throughout the food chain. In this case, that includes reducing the elk population, which had gotten out of control in the wolf's absence. The elk also started avoiding certain areas, which allowed the plants to start growing back in those areas, which provided more habitat for birds, berries for bears to eat, and wood for the beavers to use in their dams. And the roots of the regenerated trees along the riverbank even stabilized the soil so there was less erosion and the river's course was more fixed. So it is insane the kind of impact that an apex predator can have on the entire ecosystem and even the physical geography around it. There's a great video that goes into this, which there's a good chance you've already seen because almost 44 million people have, but I'll link it in the show notes. It's called How Wolves Change Rivers. Some questions that I still have here are, would reintroducing grizzly bears in California have as big of an impact as reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone? And also, how safe would it be in a state with 40 million people to reintroduce grizzly bears? KQED has a great article on this, and they sum it up saying the risks are worth it. The presence of grizzlies and mountain lions and wolves are reminders that nature in its wilder states is not here to serve us, and that wild animals and wild places have their own interests. So, interesting concept. I'd love to talk to somebody who knows more about this and hear all about apex predator reintroduction. But yeah, so it was my love of bears that led me to a new love of salmon and, and the riparian areas, the river areas. They kind of show that interconnectedness of everything. It, it is, it is. It's all connected. And fish or bait are kind of like the bottom building block. Huh, They're yeah. the building block that, that uh, you know, start the whole chain. Everything goes back to the fish. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to let Jason get back to telling you about salmon after a short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now back to salmon. So I know that they have a really unique life cycle. Can you mm-hmm. talk about what their life cycle is? Yeah, so salmon are, are again are anadromous fish. So they live both in fresh and salt water. So they're going to spend their first six months of life in fresh water mm-hmm. and they're going to make their way down the sacramento river or any major river along the uh, west coast and they're going to go and then they're going to hang out for about a month in what we call brackish water mm. and that's where the salt water and the fresh water meet mm-hmm. and they're going to go back and forth and they're going to go through a process called smultification mm. and that's where they learn to live in salt water and they head right down into, out to the ocean and they have an amazing ocean migration. Mm. Because as soon as they leave us here, they go out underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and the first thing they're gonna do is turn left. Mm. And they're gonna head down towards Monterey. Mm. And 
while they're there, they're eating up small fish, anchovies, and sardines, and they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're also watching out for predation. There's lots of things in the ocean that want to eat them as well. And then they're going to go all the way, almost down to the tip of Baja, Mexico. Wow. And then they're going to turn, and they're going to go right back up the Pacific coast through California, Oregon, Washington. Some of them make it as far north as Alaskan wow. waters. And then they turn around and they do it again. And they just keep going up and down the Pacific coast for about three or four years. Oh my goodness. So is it seasonal? Are they in a certain season? Are they in a certain place? They are. They're following their food species. Okay. They're following their prey. And they come up past us in springtime. You can go fishing for them off the coast of San Francisco in about March. Oh. In about mid-March. And that's about the time our babies are heading out into the ocean. Is about that March-April time frame. And that's when the big ones are going up the coast as well. So it's a good time of year to see salmon out there. It is. It really is. And they're kind of easy to spot because they're, they're a schooling fish. Mm. You know, so they're in large packs. And that's kind of mm -hmm. how we can tell how the runs are doing and how the species itself is doing by the number of we can spot from helicopters. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I just... Seeing from that high up. Seeing that high up. You can see just these huge schools of fish going by and... That's amazing. So they're going to make that 3,000 mile migration about three or four times in oh their my life. Goodness. And then that biological imperative of reproduction hits right as they're going by the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Hmm. And they start that migration back home to the river where they were born. Hmm. And so they come up through the Delta and then they'll go up to Sacramento, they'll turn and go to the Yuba River, the mm -hmm. Feather River here with us at the American River. Jason mentioned in the last episode that salmon find the correct river by using their sense of smell and the magnetic pole of the earth. And it, they come up here and, and here we have the Nimbus Dam. Mm -hmm. But if the Nimbus Dam wasn't here and if the Folsom Dam wasn't a little farther up, what, where, how far would they go? So they've been, they'll go up to the foothills okay. all the way up wow. uh, the north and the south forks of the American, the middle fork. And they would go up past Placerville, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit up that way. So historically, before the dams, they had about 108 miles of spawning ground wow. that they would use. And how much do they have now? Uh, about eight. Eight miles, about wow. About eight miles, yeah. yeah. So we've really drastically impacted their, their spawning grounds, mm -hmm. but we have to strike a balance with nature. Mm -hmm. You know, we need these dams for however you feel about them. You know, they do produce electricity for us. They do help protect us from floods. Um, they help with drinking water mm -hmm. and agricultural needs. So we're really trying to strike a, a delicate balance between the needs of wildlife and the needs of humans. Mm -hmm. Thusly the hatcheries, because they're trying to mitigate our effect on wildlife. Right. And keep this section of the American River as wild and free as possible. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into the controversy around hatcheries in just a few minutes. So once the salmon come up the river, then what do they do? So they're coming up here to spawn or lay their eggs. So they're going to come up and it's about 131 miles from the Bay Bridge to here. And they're going upstream that whole time with one thought in mind, and that's to lay their eggs. Mm -hmm. And they're going to come up. They're going to look for a comfortable spot in the river. They're going to dig a nest or a red as we call it and that's going to be about a six foot nest 
Wow. And the female, she's going to stay over that nest and she's going to guard it. Mm -hmm. And the males, well, they're going to fight. They're going to fight one another to get next to that lovely lady salmon <laughs> and fertilize those eggs. Uh -huh. and, and how long does the female stay there after the eggs are fertilized? So a female can stay over a nest for about four to six weeks. Oh, wow. About four to six weeks, she's guarding them from the birds uh -huh. and from other salmon. This depends on when they lay their eggs, how, mm -hmm. how early they found their spot to lay mm -hmm. their eggs. But yeah, she'll stay over it for four to six weeks. She'll just swim right around it. And uh, then ultimately she dies. Mm -hmm. The males, they go first because they're going to spawn out or fertilize as many nests as they can. And then they die. Mm -hmm. Then they die. But that, their death is, is critical to the rest of the habitat. Mm -hmm. the it's mm -hmm. critical. So... How is that whole cycle different from other fish? What are other fish doing? <laughs> Why are, what makes salmon so different? Well, that are being able to live in both fresh and salt water is fairly uh -huh. unique. It's fairly unique. So that ability to live in fresh and salt water being anadromous, only 1% of all fish are anadromous. Most fish only live in either salt water or freshwater their entire lives and don't switch back and forth between the two. Here are some types of anadromous fish in California. So of course there are the salmon, then there's sturgeon, some species of trout and some of smelt, and then there's the Pacific lamprey. So please stop whatever you're doing right now and Google this creature. You will not be disappointed. Its mouth looks like the outside of the Sarlacc pit from Return of the Jedi. And they look like this because as adults, they attach themselves to other fish and suck their blood. And though their range is much smaller than it once was, these fish do return to freshwater rivers throughout much of the state of California, all the way up to, and I would imagine beyond the Oregon border, and as far south as Oceanside. But don't worry about baby lamprey attaching to you in the river, because as larvae, they only eat microscopic particles that they filter out of the water. And the adults aren't interested in people because we aren't cold-blooded fish, hopefully. Okay, but where else in California can you find salmon? Are there other nesting grounds, different rivers that they go to? Sure, they're going to use the rivers as far down as the Merced, so okay. down by Yosemite. Okay. They'll still come up there. But they're cold water fish, mm -hmm. so... So not too far south, really. Not too far south, no. There's been a big restoration project in Napa along oh. uh, Puda Creek. I grew up in Napa and my dad used to take me fishing in Pewter Creek when I was a really, really little kid. And so some of my earliest memories are tromping around in that creek. I looked this up and I couldn't find a restoration project currently in Napa County, but I did see a huge restoration project that's taken place in Winters, California, which is just to the east of the section that runs through Napa. And I actually got to go and see it with my naturalist class and it is beautiful. You wouldn't know that it had all been restored because it looks so natural now. A good friend of mine, mm -hmm. uh, she has spearheaded a lot of that uh, salmon habitat restoration. Oh, cool. And People have really learned the importance of salmon, habit salmon habitat to the rest of the surrounding habitat and the wildlife. Mm -hmm. So people have really taken an interest in rewilding yeah. is, the, is the, the key term right now. Mm -hmm. Rewilding rivers, rewilding habitats mm -hmm. because they're realizing how connected they are mm -hmm. and what a benefit they are to the surrounding community. 
tourism for one folks like to come down there and, and watch it as well as fishing but it it really just improves all aspects of life mm-hmm. once you have these wild things back into your environment to your lived environment right i mean it's a not a lot nicer to look at than like a concrete drainage ditch <laughs> <laughs> it is that is true and it's always fascinating to me to go to a place that's in the early stages of restoration and see how quickly nature takes hold mm-hmm. it's like we just have to leave it alone right and give it a chance give it a chance and nature will will grow mm-hmm. and this and the birds will come first and then the small mammals your frogs or mm-hmm. reptiles are going to start colonizing that area and within two or three years it doesn't look like what you started what it started with wow that's amazing yeah yeah so resilient so to the south, Merced River is sort of the cutoff. Mm-hmm. To the north, do they just go all the way? How far up do they go? I mean, it's outside of California. <laughs> they go all the way up to the Yukon River in Alaska. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're all through all of the western states. There's uh, salmon that go into Idaho. Oh, my they gosh. They follow creeks all the way into Idaho. That's so much farther inland than I realized. Yeah. That is well, so I cool. found that one out because I'm always looking for new information. Yeah. New, new classes to take and I was blown away by that migration that they made Mm -hmm. and I'm like how how these salmon that spawn in Idaho have to swim over 900 miles to get there that's compared to the 130 miles that the salmon at Nimbus have to swim and it's like when you you think of a species that is adapted to oceans rivers has the ability to climb over obstacles because salmon they can jump about six to eight feet in oh my the air gosh, wow. to go right over things else, uh, obstacles they find in their habitat. Mm-hmm. It's just so amazing. It's it's that's like, incredible. That's yeah. so far inland. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So they have they have really a pretty immense range. And then uh, speaking outside of the West Coast, are they found like I mean I've heard. Atlantic salmon, right? So they're definitely elsewhere in the world as well. Oh yeah, sure. There's they're different species mm-hmm. uh, on the Atlantic salmon. They're, they're Atlantic salmon here in Northern California. We have the Chinook, mm-hmm. but the colder the water is, the more species of salmon you'll have. Mm. Uh, there's five main types of Pacific salmon, but you have salmon that are in Norway, mm-hmm. in Russia. Uh, there's a a species of salmon that lives in South America, in mm. Chile. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. you go far enough south, it gets cold enough again. again. And there you will have them. So salmon are pretty ubiquitous. And Chinook, are those the only species found in California? Or others, as you go a little farther northern California, are there others? There's other species. We have the Chinook. We have uh, Coho. I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's other species, but I don't want to say the wrong names. Oh, yeah. But there's other species. The colder the water gets, mm-hmm. there's more species. Jason was dead on about this. According to caltrout.org, California's diverse geography and habitats have allowed four species of salmon to live at the southern end of their ranges. So those are Chinook, Coho, Pink, and Chum. In Alaska, they have all five species. Mm-hmm. And there's also different runs. What we have here in Northern California is we call the fall run. Mm-hmm. So they come back in the, and lay their eggs in the fall. In other rivers, they'll have a spring run oh. where the salmon will come up in late January 
and leave their eggs closer to the spring. Oh, wow. As well as a fall run. And some rivers that stay cold, they'll have a fall, a spring, and a winter. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That is wild. So yeah. it's it's not cold enough here to get as much diversity. We're kind of on the periphery, right. on the borderlands yeah. for salmon. Yeah, so the Chinook are also called king salmon because they're mm -hmm. the largest. And I just think they have the the widest variety mm -hmm. of uh, uh, variability to be able to, to go into different rivers. Kind of the most general, yeah, the most generalist species. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things we've talked about as we've been walking around is the importance of salmon to the ecosystem. So mm -hmm. can you tell me what what is a keystone species? What does that mean, so that term? The keystone species is just like the keystone of a building. Mm -hmm. It's the foundation. It's the foundational species because the salmon have such a unique life cycle where they come up, uh, lay their eggs and die. Mm -hmm. They're food for such a, a wide variety of animals. Mm -hmm. So they're here, uh, the birds are going to eat their eggs. Some of the gulls are going to eat the carcasses. The vultures are going to come and eat the salmon call, uh, carcasses. Um, snakes eat their eggs. Mm -hmm. So without the salmon completing that life cycle, the the biodiversity along the river wouldn't wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. You know, so they're they're critical to the habitat around them. Even the grass mm -hmm. eats salmon because as it decays, it adds nutrients, marine nutrients back into the ground that allows the ground to be more productive and to grow uh, diverse uh, types of plants as well. So, so uh, they, if you take that species out, you take that keystone out, other things start to collapse. Everything, yes, other things will start to collapse. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have, uh, we're part of the Pacific Flyway, so mm -hmm. we wouldn't have uh, food for some of the migratory birds that come. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody likes to look at a skunk, but you don't want a skunk going through your trash. Right. And without the, new, the, the natural food sources, well, these animals are going to move into more of a human interface. Mm -hmm. You know, so the raccoons, you know, will come down and scavenge the salmon or they're going to scavenge your, your trash, mm -hmm. you know. So it helps keep things in balance. Mm -hmm. It really does. So. And it's probably a better food source for them Absolutely. eating trash. <laughs> Absolutely. No one should eat that. No. In researching this episode, I found out that scientists often disagree about what should be considered a keystone species. That's because there's no formal scientific designation for this. However, Pacific salmon were on just about every list of keystone species that I found, and that's because of what Jason said. They transport so many marine nutrients back to the land and are so foundational in supporting so much wildlife. And one of the definitions of a keystone species is that the whole ecosystem would be different or even collapse without that species present. I also found out through a National Geographic page that there are different types of keystone species. So National Geographic breaks it down like this. Predators, so think of the wolves in Yellowstone. Ecosystem engineers, so those would be like beavers because they actually create ecosystem for other animals by creating wetlands with their dams. And mutualists, so for that, the example that Nat Geo gave was bees and flowers. So the bees get nectar from the flowers and the flowers get pollinated and that helps them reproduce. So they have a mutual relationship. There are also other ways of categorizing keystone species. I'll link that National Geographic page in the show notes in case you want to learn more about that. 
In the last episode, we heard about how this impact of salmon can take place pretty far actually away from the shore. So here, Jason talks a little bit more about how that can happen and what animals can be involved. Especially the turkey vultures, mm-hmm. they're going to grab them. They're really going to pull them off the shore to, to hide them from other vultures. Oh. They don't want to share. So they're going to pull them and this they're going to kind of hide them. Yeah, yeah, underneath trees and they might eat the bulk of it in one sitting, but mm-hmm. then they'll come back. Oh, they'll come back. They know to their it. hiding spot. They know where they hit them. Oh my gosh. You know, and raccoons and, and the bobcats that live around here, they're going to pull them off and get out of the way because they don't want to be seen as well as they don't want to give up their, their, their food. Right. And I'm sure every once in a while they don't come back and that fish just fertilizes that tree or the... That's right. That's right. Wow. And those nutrients are shared throughout the whole, the whole community. Right. The whole community. Okay, the next one's a really big question. All it's right. I'm gonna fire the whole thing at you, but then we can break it down. All right, fire away. <laughs> so it goes, why do we have hatcheries? How do they work and why are they controversial? <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's thanks for really, that softball. <laughs> that's really big, it's really big. So just a quick note here before Jason dives into this very difficult series of questions. And that is that my intention here really is to talk about the natural life cycle of the fish. But just like in the last episode, how I couldn't ignore dams and talk about the life cycle of fish today, I also can't ignore hatcheries and talk about the life cycle of the fish today because there's such a high prevalence of hatcheries in rivers where we find salmon. There are a total of 12 hatcheries throughout the state of California. So first of all, why do we have hatcheries? Well, the reason for the hatchery is because we realize the importance of the salmon. Mm-hmm. We realized that blocking off their habitat, we quickly saw their numbers dwindle. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we had to do something. Mm-hmm. So the hatchery is just a way of artificially spawning the salmon mm-hmm. and raising them to a certain age. For us, it's about six months and then releasing them back into the river. Mm -hmm. So we're just making up for the environmental changes we made. That about 100 miles of lost spawning ground. Uh So we factored in what the carrying capacity, and that's a fancy word for how many fish can survive in Mm. this environment, what the carrying capacity of the river is. And we estimated, all right, well, our target is to get about 100,000 salmon up the river, so how many fish can we release to get that? And it's about a five to one ratio, Mm -hmm. uh, or yeah, five to one ratio, five fish will survive for every spawning pair. Mm -hmm. So we release about 4 million. Wow. Because we know, you know, we put out 4 million, we're gonna get about 100,000 back. Wow. So that's about the carrying capacity of this river. Other rivers have larger releases Mm -hmm. because they have a larger carrying capacity Mm -hmm. and estimating what historically would have come up the river, you know. So with all that data we're always collecting, we try to mitigate or make up for our changes we made. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a hatchery. Okay, okay. So that's why there's a hatchery. Now, you kind of went in a little bit to how they work. So, and we, we looked at the fish ladder. So can you go maybe a little bit more into detail about how the hatchery works? Sure, sure. So the hatchery is a very seasonal operation. Mm-hmm. Most of the year, the ladder is dry, as we say. But in the fall, when it's time for our salmon to spawn, what we do is we, we flow the American River water through the fish ladder, which is just a series of steps that go down to the river. And 
the fish will automatically, will naturally follow that upstream mm -hmm. because they, they're hardwired to go upstream. So it's not very, it's not invasive to them. It's not like we're catching them. They'll naturally climb to the top of the ladder. And then about three or four times a week, we'll do what we call spawning them, mm -hmm. where we bring them into the hatchery. And I always have to warn folks about this. Remember, this is the end of the salmon's life cycle. Yeah. So we do, we kill them inside. Mm -hmm. And we take those eggs out of the females and we'll take a male and we'll fertilize their fish with the, the, the eggs and we'll maintain those eggs in a controlled environment because we want the maximum effectiveness. We want them to hatch. Mm -hmm. So they are they're bathed in American river water. They live in the river water. But we do go through and take out any dead ones we mm -hmm. see uh, because we don't want disease or anything to spread right. in the, in the uh, eggs. Because in one hatching jar, which we used to use, we do it a little bit differently now, we'll put 80,000 eggs in the one. Yeah. And so we really are con conscious of diseases spreading through the population. Right, sure. We do have different hatching mechanisms now. As we learn better, we do better. Mm -hmm. And then we'll, we'll raise them for about six or seven months. Mm -hmm and then send them back out into the wild. Wow, yeah. and, and um, when do they kind of start to hatch? What time of year? So they're gonna lay their eggs in November and December, and it takes about three months. Mm -hmm. So they're gonna hatch in February and March when they'll start hatching out. All right, yeah. time yeah. to come back and look at the, at yeah. the little fish. And look at the little babies, we'll see some in the river, and you know, once the COVID settles down, we can actually go into the back and take nice. a look. That would be great, okay. So here's the harder question. Why are hatcheries controversial? It sounds like, you know, let's make up fish habitat. Let's, you know, for what's lost. So, so what's the problem? So the controversy is the, I think the artificial nature of mm -hmm. it. That we are doing this by hand. Mm. That this is a man-made product, if you will. And a lot of people conflate hatchery raised with farm raised mm -hmm. fish. And you know, differences in opinions. That's what make horse races, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so people think that we should just leave it to a state of nature, not have dams, uh, return the, the river system as wild, wild and free. Mm -hmm. And while I think everybody would like to see that, it's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. You know, we live here. We need the water controls. We need the water for power production, drinking water. So I, just, I think people have a, a kind of a misconception mm. about what we're doing here, that we are somehow manipulating the salmon. Mm. And we're, in every pass, we're trying to simulate nature mm -hmm. as much as humanly possible, mm -hmm. simulate how nature works and keeping things in balance, you know, Sure, sure. Okay, buckle up everybody, this is a big one. I spent hours and hours researching this, to be totally honest with you, because I wanted to wrap my head around it. And so now I'm going to try to condense that into just a couple of minutes. And, and also, I honestly didn't even want to touch this topic because I knew it was so controversial and this isn't my area of expertise, but I did my best. So let's dig into it a little bit. Okay, so first, Discover Magazine has an article titled, Are Hatcheries Helping or Hurting 
wild fish populations, which states hatcheries can help stabilize populations, allowing fishing operations to continue, but only if they produce fish whose offspring can thrive in the wild. Michael Bluen, a biology professor at Oregon State University, has long known that fish raised in the concrete troughs of a hatchery are different from wild fish. And so this article goes into detail on how dramatically different hatchery fish are from wild fish and how these differences make them better adapted to life in a hatchery than life in the wild. There's also a concern that these hatchery fish are then interbreeding with wild fish and hurting the entire population by passing their genes along. Another resource to check out if you want to learn more about this is the Native Fish Society. Here's their mission statement. Guided by the best available science, Native Fish Society advocates for the recovery and protection of wild native fish and promotes the stewardship of the habitats that sustain them. They provide a ton of science on their website, and one of the most important things I learned from the Native Fish Society website is that they talk about the most pervasive limiting factors for wild native fish, and those are the four H's. So hydroelectric dams, habitat, hatcheries, and harvest. So habitat is stuff that's really cool. We're doing a lot already to work on habitat. So these river restoration projects like the Pewter Creek one, and then there was another one in the fall for the American River where a lot of salmon gravel was trucked in to help the salmon have spawning ground. And then harvest is limiting the amount of fishing that's able to be done. But then you might have noticed that it also goes into dams and hatcheries. As Jason pointed out, we use the dams for drinking water and flood prevention, as over 6 million Californians now live in the Central Valley, which was once a vast floodplain before the complex systems of dams and levees came in. So do you see why I didn't want to touch this? It is so complicated and it affects so many different things. Some people have suggested alternatives such as covered reservoirs, more localized water storage solutions, and some restored wetlands to help solve some of these issues while allowing rivers to be restored. But this is of course a massively complex infrastructure problem that can't be solved in one podcast episode. Okay, I hope that little tiny overview helped clarify some of the different sides of this issue. Let's talk about something less controversial now. Let's go back in time to the gold rush days. I read uh, in a California history book that prior to 1850, the beginning of the gold rush, they did have, you know, they were able to, to take out nearly a million pounds of salmon. Wow. A year. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But even that was unsustainable. Then when right. the gold rush came, we really started impacting their habitat through mm -hmm. hydraulic mining, which was a way of using water to spray the riverbank mm -hmm. to force the gold down. Mm -hmm. But everything that wasn't gold, they would put back into the river and they would just add tons and tons of sediment mm -hmm. and exposed rocks. Mm -hmm. And that was terrible for the salmon's habitat. And that was in some places, nearly an extinction event. Wow. Or extinction is actually a man, is a natural event. Uh, extirpation is when mm -hmm. it's man-made. Mm -hmm. So an extirpation event where we almost took them completely out of the ecosystem through hydraulic mining. And another funny story that I, I'd like to tell is about quicksilver and oh. mining. So quicksilver is a way of not saying mercury. And mercury <laughs> was used in gold mining because mercury sticks to gold, but not to rocks. Mm -hmm. So they would squirt a little mercury in their pans to pick the gold out. 
and then they would just wash it in the river. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody I tell this story is saying, like, oh, for no. real? Oh, but no. if you've ever heard that mercury has a very negative effect on humans as well, mm-hmm. well, they used to use their finger, and they would lick their finger <gasps> to pick the gold oh, no. out of the pan. So I, I like to think that a lot of gunfights in the Old West or due to a little mercury poisoning. A little mercury of madness. A little mercury madness, oh exactly. Oh my God. When we say mercury madness right here, we're referring to the old saying, mad as a hatter, because in the 18th and 19th centuries, hat makers used mercury to turn animal furs into felt for hats, and it caused psychological symptoms. Wikipedia's page on this sums it up this way. Acute mercury exposure has given rise to psychotic reactions such as delirium, hallucinations, and suicidal tendency. Occupational exposure has resulted in erethism, with irritability, excitability, excessive shyness, and insomnia as the principal features of a broad-ranging functional disturbance. With continuing exposure, a fine tremor develops, initially involving the hands and later spreading to the eyelids, lips, and tongue, causing violent muscular spasms in the most severe cases. So if these gold miners were ingesting large, steady quantities of mercury, it seems entirely possible that this could have led to a lot of interpersonal issues among them and possibly gunfights. Also, when I was researching this aside, I found a website called 1849.org, all about the effects of the gold rush on California native people and their land. And there's just way too much to this story to do it justice in one little aside. It really deserves its own episode on both the ecological and human impacts of the mercury use and mining practices back from the gold rush. So I'll be keeping my eye out for an expert on this. But yeah, so that mercury is still in the river system Uh now, all these hundreds of years later, because it doesn't break down and it just settles at the bottom. So then we have mercury in our food system Mm -hmm. through a system called biomagnification. We can talk about that in another episode. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is a serious concern Mm -hmm. for, for folks. So that's a big one. Okay, Merriam-Webster defines biomagnification as the process by which a compound, such as a pollutant or pesticide, increases its concentration in tissues of organisms as it travels up the food chain. So many good ideas for future episodes coming out of this one. What do you wish people knew about salmon? Just how amazing they are. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fish them, you don't have to eat them, but just realize this amazing spectacle, this amazing migration is happening right in your backyard. That these three foot long, 20 to 30 pound fish are coming up, laying millions of eggs mm-hmm. right in your back door. And if you live farther south, then they're right off your coast. Right off migrating. the coast, right migrating right past you. I think we don't spend enough time looking down mm. and, and sitting on a log like the two of us are doing <laughs> today and, and listening and just being awestruck mm-hmm. that this happens every year. And this has been happening every year for thousands of years, you know. So just spend a moment with them. Meet your local salmon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I had never seen, until I came here with the naturalist class in the fall, I had never seen salmon in the river. And it was just a beautiful new experience for me to just sit there on a rock and watch them jump. 
If you can see me, I'm shaking my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's common. I hear that yeah. all the time in my years out here that people say, I never knew mm -hmm. that this was happening. Mm -hmm. I never knew that the salmon I eat came right through here. Yeah. I'm like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is where it starts. This is where it starts and this is where it stops. You, you wake up, you're in your house, you get in your car, you go to your job, you get back in your car, you go back to your house, maybe you go to the store, you don't see what's maybe a mile away from your house or a few miles away from your house. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm retired from the Army, and when I first came home, I used to drive over the Sunrise Bridge, mm. and I would look down at the river, and I was, I'm a naturally curious person, and I kept saying to myself, I want to live, I want to work there. Mm -hmm. What's there? I wanted to know. And through a series of classes at the community college and just going for walks, mm -hmm. I stumbled into becoming a naturalist mm -hmm. and educating folks about the river and just getting out of my car, mm -hmm. getting curious, getting out of your car and spending time with a place you never know where it's gonna take you. And the place can teach you. And the place, the place can teach me. you a lot. Jason really embodies to me a lot of what I want this podcast to be about. Just getting out there and experiencing things and that wonder and the curiosity and asking questions. And I just love that. He says one of his favorite parts of the job is working with young school kids who come to the hatchery. Do they have great reactions when they see the fish? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that, it's, it's fantastic because the first one, they're, at first they're so they're, they're in shock that uh -huh. this is there. And then I get them to touch it. And the first one is, ew, once the first child touches it, student touches it, the rest of the class, I've got to keep them off of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> they just get so engrossed by getting grossed out. I believe yeah. in doing everything hands-on. Yeah. You know, so we're poking the fish and identifying the different parts of the fish. You know, we'll cut one open after it's dead, of course. And we'll look at the different uh, internal organs. And I feel like if I can get them excited about nature and wildlife, they'll be the next naturalist. Yeah. They'll be the ones that, that vote to, you know, conserve mm -hmm. whether that, rather than to pave over, mm -hmm. you know, things. So I'm, I'm here for the future. Yeah. I'm hoping that. Somebody will say, I remember Mr. Jason told me this. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, that guy, the fish guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. Something has to be that spark. So they need that exposure. If yeah. they don't have it, they won't know. Yeah. And I get kids from South Sac all the way up to, to Grass Valley. And the one thing that unites them is a disconnect from nature. Mm. You know, I mm. make them get the nature on them. Yeah. We're going to hike down to the river's edge. We're going to pick things up. We're going to flip over some rocks. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't care where your socioeconomics come from. People are disconnected from nature. Mm. So true. And if I can plug them in for a couple hours, maybe I can change their outlook on, on their whole life. Uh -huh. so pretty, pretty cool. That is very cool. That is a very cool opportunity. Jason and other educators who get their students doing hands-on work and outside and in the field and engaging firsthand with their learning, they're doing the good work. But what about the rest of us who don't necessarily have a classroom full of kids or a way to bring them outdoors or access to these kinds of spaces? What can we do to help? So I think the average person 
can do to help protect salmon is the things we're taught from Woods of the Owl. You know, be careful what we put out into the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to dump uh, trash and motor oil down our our sewer system. A thing that a lot of people don't think about is fertilizer when you're mm -hmm. fertilizing our yards. Yeah. That adds a, adds a lot of uh, nitrogen and mm -hmm. phosphorus into the water and that can change the oxygen levels in river water through algae blooms. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to be careful about how we interact with our environment. So I just googled where do storm drains go? And here's what waterboards.ca.gov says. Water that flows down driveways and streets and into the gutter goes into a storm drain, which flows directly to a lake, river, or the ocean. This water may pick up pollutants along the way, which are never treated. So that water doesn't go to some kind of treatment facility before it goes straight back into these natural water sources. So rivers, lakes, the ocean. And so whatever is on your driveway or whatever is on your lawn is flowing straight into these natural bodies of water. Good thing to keep in mind. And another big thing is come out and look at it. Yeah. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Because when the vote for a new community is, is proposed or you want to expand the local subdivision, you'll know, hey, I remember that fish guy was telling me that this is important mm -hmm. to other species. Mm -hmm. And maybe, just maybe, they'll stop and think and maybe change their ideas about needing more housing here or there. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't really get into this topic, but I don't think that Jason is saying that we don't need housing for people or that everything is just okay. I have heard some environmental advocates say things like, we need to build up rather than out so that we can preserve the wildlands that we already have. And I know there's a lot of good conversation right now trying to take into account both the needs of people and housing needs and also being able to conserve the environment that we have around us. And trying to keep all of those things in balance and, and being able to see it from all of those perspectives too, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The more perspectives or more angles you can come to something with, the better. Mm -hmm. Whether it's wildlife or dealing with one another. Mm -hmm. If you can identify with something else and internalize their needs, well, I just think that makes us all mm -hmm. a bit better humans. Mm -hmm. More empathy. More empathy. More empathy. The next thing I was curious about was when would be the best time of year for people to come out to the river and see the salmon? Every day. No. People should, to really see the salmon uh, doing their thing, it's October 15th through December 25th. Okay. That's when there's a lot of salmon in the river. And I'm out here, we can talk, and uh, you can see the salmon jumping and getting ready to make their nests. Mm -hmm. And they're coming up the ladder in November, so you get the bird's eye, you can look right down and see how just amazing these fish are. So come out to Nimbus, see Jason, do it That's in the fall. Right. Come see me in the fall. <laughs> Perfect. 
because of the timing of this, it's a great thing to do with out-of-town guests who might be there for the holidays. So I had family from Oklahoma at my house for Thanksgiving, and we all went out to Effie Yaw Nature Center and walked down to the American River where they have recently done that restoration project, and we got to see the salmon spawning in the river, and it was just very cool. So highly recommend. Is it possible in the spring to come and see the, the little fry in the river, or are they hard to see? They're tough to see in the yeah. river, but uh, once we get back to regular operations, we do have them in what we call the raceways, where mm. folks can come out and feed the fish. Oh, that's cool. They help us take care of the next generation. And that's really interesting, because you can see how they grow. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have a few different tanks, and sometimes we'll have different sized fish mm -hmm. in, different si in different tanks, so you can kind of track their, their growth. And that's always a fun thing. It's free. Mm -hmm. One of the nice things about coming down here, it's free. You know, get to talk to me. Yeah, I didn't even pay for parking. No, nope. just a nice Last free parking. Parking lot. It's amazing. It's yeah. a rare thing. And then if you see a nest in the river, mm -hmm. or what should you do when you know it's maybe after the fall? We're in the winter and there's uh -huh. maybe nests in the river. What should you do around rivers to kind of make sure to keep them safe? Keep your feet out of the river. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, because their nests are so shallow, you don't want to really wade into the river because you might inadvertently step on a, a nest. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody goes tromping through the river with the intent right. of stepping on a nest. This is, it's completely unintentional. But just kind of give the river a break mm -hmm. for three months. Mm -hmm. Let the fish have the river for a little while. And it's cold anyway. So it's very cold. It's a perfect time to stay out of the <laughs> <Yeah>. river. <laughs> that school goes rafting in the summertime, but it is cold right now. Awesome. Perfect. Last question. What about the, the work that you do out here or what about these animals still just takes your breath away? Oh, I've never seen the same river twice. Hmm. In 10 years, 11 years, I learn something new every day. I learn a new song from a bird. I see a dead tree in a different light mm -hmm. because different animals are going to occupy different habitats or niches at different times of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so it's every day is my first day. So. That, that is a, a really special job, really mm -hmm. special experience. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is watch the humans. You know, <laughs> watch people. It does keep it interesting. It does. Human watching is fun. You know, people are silly. Uh, seeing the kids, you know, so. But the wildlife, it never lets you down. Mm -hmm. It never lets you down. It doesn't care about you <laughs> so much <laughs> it's going to do its thing mm -hmm. and if you're lucky and you're quiet and you get to watch them live their lives mm -hmm. in, can, in a way that we don't get to see mm -hmm. in person uh, very much anymore so yeah that's beautiful so come and be still come, come and, and be still. be still a little bit we'll sit together and not talk Except I want to hear everything you have to say, so it's going to be hard. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate all of the time that you have given to this and all of your expertise. It's been wonderful. Well, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. And uh, I look forward to coming out. We'll 
We'll do it again. Let's do it again. I think I need to take Jason up on that offer because he really embodies so much of what I think of when I think of a good naturalist. He observes, he puzzles things out, he brings his full sense of curiosity to everything and keeps an open mind about what some possible answers might be. It was such a joy to record this interview with him. I've got some thank yous to throw out today. First one is for my mom for coming up and helping with the kids for a couple nights so that I could work on this. And then also just all of my family and friends who have been just cheering me on and constantly supporting me. Then I've got Doug DeRoy, who is from the Native Fish Society, who talked to me for like an hour to help me wrap my mind around what the controversy around hatcheries is and some of the science and some of the issues. So that was so appreciated. And then also to my sister-in-law, Bethany, for babysitting so that I could go do this interview when my husband had to work. So that was amazing and made this possible. Couple of other things right here at the end. One is you can follow me on Instagram at Golden State Naturalist. And sometimes on there, I will let you know when I'm heading out for an interview and you can add your questions in the comment section for me to ask the naturalist. So I hope to see you there on Instagram and then also on Patreon and on my new website, which is goldenstatenaturalist.com. I've currently got a handful of interviews recorded and a couple more scheduled. So I'm working on getting those edited and getting them out to you. I'm still working on my editing skills and releasing episodes every other week. So look for the next one in two weeks from today. All right, and then if you stay until the very end, I tell you something interesting from my week. And this week it is that I realized that I was almost out of time to buy Girl Scout cookies. And so I panic bought nine boxes from my friend's daughter, an online Girl Scout cookie sale. They were mostly Samoas and Thin Mints, but I also got one box of the lemon ones because one of my kids doesn't like chocolate. So go figure. So I'm really excited about getting those soon. I'm just waiting every day. That's all for this time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to this entire interview and this entire episode and sticking around until the very end. I can't wait to see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. The song you just heard is called I Dunno by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song as well as to the Creative Commons license in the show notes. Bye-bye.